first paragraph. <laughs> yeah, we're continuing our series on the culture of prayer. Uh, if you remember, Tim started with Lord teach us to pray. Quincy followed with the Father's character. Then three weeks ago, uh, Tim spoke on the Father's kingdom. And in between, we've had Dale's series on Genesis, bringing a fresh look at the first two chapters of the Bible. So today, under the culture of prayer, we're going to look at the Father's provision. The verse we should be looking at is in Matthew 6, but we'll also be dipping into several other passages. Uh, And if you've not brought a Bible with you, or you'd rather not use an electronic version, we do have some spare Bibles uh, for you, so just pop up your hand and one will miraculously find its way to you. So Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread is the verse we'll be looking at. I'd like to read it in context, but this passage is so familiar to us that we can easily gloss over it with the words that we know so well. So here is a slightly different version. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your name will always be kept holy. We pray that your kingdom will come, that what you want will be done here on earth, the same as in heaven. Give us the food we need for today. Forgive our sins, just as we have forgiven those who did wrong to us. Don't let us be tempted, but save us from the evil one. For the kingdom and the power and the glory belong to you forever and ever. Amen. That's the easy-to-read version, and it was. Give us the food we need for today, or give us this day our daily bread. We'll come back to look at this in detail a little later, but let me pick on one word, daily. The Greek is unusual here because it's a previously unknown word, and it's only used here and in the parallel passage in Luke 11. So that makes it difficult to translate. But also, it's a composite word made up of a couple of other Greek words. You might think that makes it a little easier to translate, but it actually offers several different options. One is it could mean sufficient. Give us this day sufficient bread. I'm just asking for enough. Another is sustenance. Give us today bread that sustains us. I'm asking for this bread to keep me going for the day. And then similar to that is bread to go, which is not like popping into Costa and asking for a flat white to go, but more to use an old-fashioned phrase, for the morrow. The Jewish day started at sundown, which is quite hard for us to grasp. So praying for this provision for the morrow or for when I wake up makes more sense and is considered amongst those three probably the most accurate, although they all do, um, they all are relevant. But for the morrow leads us to daily bread, bread for today. So why do we need to ask God for this most basic provision 
of bread for the day. Surely we are capable of providing that for ourselves. We can work, even if we're not paid very much. We, we should be able to supply our daily food. To answer this, we need to look back into the Old Testament. In fact, right back to Genesis 1 and 2. I'm a little bit reluctant to do this in the middle of Dale's series, particularly as he spent a lot of his sabbatical studying just those first two chapters. But we're going to do it anyway. I want to read several verses from Genesis 1 and 2. We'll start at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and I'll direct you as we jump around. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to actually jump around. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now on to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now back into Genesis 1 and verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Now, there are a few things to note from these passages. The first is that God planted the garden. It was his garden. He created it. Simple statement of fact. It was God's garden. Then there are a couple of what we call creation principles. These are things established before sin entered the world, before the fall, which we can reason were not introduced as a result of sin, but part of the very purpose of creation. They could also be called kingdom principles because they reflect what God expects within his kingdom. The first is work is provided by God for man. We saw from Genesis chapter 2 that this was in God's mind even before he created man. And this work was to look after the garden and ultimately the whole earth. God is saying, 
This is your responsibility. Another kingdom principle is that God will provide food for man. Also in Genesis 2, we, we saw God says that they may eat freely from any tree in the garden. We can easily focus on the next verse, where the one they can't eat from, and miss this provision of God. And also in Genesis 1, we see it's not just the garden, but the whole earth. It shall be food for you. God is saying, this is my responsibility. Now, there's no indication here that these two principles are linked. How can they be if one is our responsibility and the other is God's responsibility? God does not say that as a reward for man's work, he can eat. In fact, it is only after the fall, as a result of sin, that this changes. It is part of man's punishment, both that work will be hard and food is linked to work. If you flick over into Genesis 3 and verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. This has been our experience all our lives because we were born after the fall. We work for reward, and to receive something for nothing is unusual, if not completely alien. If Adam were to reason with God that the fruit he's eating is a result of the work that he's done, we would naturally side with Adam. But it's God's garden. Let's watch a short video to illustrate this. Could we have the lights down? There was a man at an airport and he wanted to buy a bag of very small donuts and a coffee, so he buys his bag of small donuts and he buys his coffee and he's looking for somewhere to sit, but all the tables are all taken. But there's one table where there's one man sitting and he thinks, oh, I'll just go and sit opposite him. So he goes there, he puts his coffee down, he puts his bags down, he gets his coat off, puts it on the chair, sits down, <sighs> opens his coffee, has a sip picks up the bag of donuts, opens it, takes out a donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down. The man opposite stretches over, picks up the bag of donuts, opens it, takes out a donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down, smiles. The other man cannot believe what he has just seen. He cannot believe that the man has just stolen one of his donuts. He's thinking, what, I mean, what is the world coming to? What is the world? But then he thinks, well, maybe, you know, the guy's not quite there or, you know, he better not say anything in case the guy kind of erupts and he's violent. But he gives him one of these, if looks could kill look. <laughs> he picks up the bag of donuts, he takes out another donut and he moves it near to his coffee, <laughs> as far away from the other man. While he's sipping his coffee, the man stretches over, 
picks up the bag, takes out another donut, starts eating it, puts it on the table, pushes it back, smiles. The other guy can't believe it. He's done it twice. He's stolen two of my donuts. He's amazed. He can't believe it. He's really angry. But he decides not to say anything. Anyway, the man gets up to leave. So the other man thinks it's about time you left, you donut thief. <laughs> he put his coat on, he picked up his bag, he then picked up the bag of donuts. There's one donut inside. He takes it out, he breaks it in half, he puts half in his mouth, puts half on the bag, he moves the bag, he smiles, he waves, off he goes. The other guy thinks, I'm not touching that donut, you donut thief. You're probably full of infection. Anyway, he looks at his watch. Oh, it's time for me to go. He gets up, he puts his coat on. He then bends down to pick up his bag and sitting on top of his bag was his bag of donuts. <laughs> He was complaining, he was complaining that the other man was stealing his donuts when in fact the other man was sharing his donuts. Now, listen to me, listen to me. God owns all the donuts. If you don't know him, that was a guy called J. John, and he was preaching on giving, and he used this illustration to reinforce the principle that everything we have is provided by God. Work, food, life, everything. God owns all the donuts, or it's his garden. And if this is a creation or kingdom principle, do we see any evidence of it elsewhere in the Old Testament? You're probably immediately thinking of manna in the wilderness, which we find in Exodus. Let me quickly recap that event. We find the people of Israel, God's chosen people, in bondage or slavery in Egypt, and they've been there about 400 years. God releases them through a series of plagues the last of which was the angel of death passing over the land of Egypt and taking the firstborn of every family. God's people were protected by sacrificing a lamb and putting the, the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of their houses. So the destroyer passed over them and they were saved. Every year from then on, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Passover. And it was this feast that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, when he established for the church what we celebrate as communion or the Lord's Supper, which we will do a little later. But back to Egypt. God brought his people out, but they were chased by the Egyptians to the Red Sea where God parted the water and enabled his people to reach the other side 
in safety. They then had to cross the wilderness to get to the land promised to them by God. A land, it said, flowing with milk and honey, a land of fruitfulness. But for them to be ready to inhabit the land, there were some things that God had to teach them. Remember, they'd they'd been 400 years in Egypt and only known slavery for several generations. He taught them once again what it meant to be the people of God. He gave them laws so they knew how to live. He gave them the tabernacle so they knew how to worship and meet with God. And he provided manna so they knew how to trust God. This should have taken about three years. But they didn't trust God. And so spent 40 years in the wilderness. Nevertheless, God provided manna every day of those 40 years. This manna was in direct contrast to their time in Egypt, where they had to work regardless of whether they were provided for or looked after. All they had to do was go and collect it every day. I've got a modern picture of manna here. Maybe, maybe it's not what it looked like, but it was how it was named. Manna means, what is it? What's it? Ah, <laughs> oh, it's good, isn't it? It's good. Oh, maybe not that good. <laughs> Bit cheesy. <laughs> it, it just gets worse. Let's move on. This manna was quite literally a taster of what it meant to trust God for provision and not something they had to work for. It was also a taster of what was to come. The promised land was very fruitful and God was providing it for them. This whole story is a great picture of our Christian life where we were in bondage or slavery to sin and through Jesus' sacrifice we are freed. But in contrast to Israel, he has put his law on our heart so we can live his way. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit so we can worship in spirit and in truth. And we can learn to trust him as he provides for us. We're going to take a break from the preach now and we're going to celebrate communion together. Uh, But first, I just want to say a few words to anyone who might be listening online after uh, after we finished, as it were. Um, Why not press pause? And if you have the opportunity to take bread and wine, do so. But if not, don't rush on. Take a moment to celebrate what Jesus has done for you in taking the punishment for your sin through his sacrifice on the cross. We've looked at a significant corporate provision when God supplied manna to his people every day for 40 years in the wilderness. What about a more individual example, Elijah? We read about him in 1 Kings 17. We find him having to bring bad news to a bad king of Israel, Ahab. Elijah prophesied that there would be no dew or rain except at his word. This drought lasted three years 
And consequently, there was a famine in the land as the crops failed through lack of water. You can imagine that during that time, King Ahab would want to get his hands on Elijah for lots of reasons, but certainly to persuade him to say, say the word that rain might come again. But Elijah disappeared. God told him to go to hide near a brook called Cherith, which funnily enough comes from a Hebrew word which means cut off. Elijah was cut off from society and hidden. But how would he live? Well, along with God's instruction to hide was also a promise that he would look after Elijah. The brook would provide him water, and each day God sent ravens to feed him. They came twice a day, morning and evening, with bread and meat to sustain him. But there was a problem. After a while, the brook dried up, which is not entirely surprising given that there was no rain. God told Elijah to go to a place called Sarapheth and to stay there. This was beyond the northern borders of Israel, but we shall see that it was also affected by the lack of rain. Again, it came with a promise. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So off Elijah goes. And when he arrived at Zarephath, he met a widow gathering sticks. I'm not sure how he recognized that she was a widow, but he did. And he approached her and asked her for some water, which is interesting given that there was a drought. The widow didn't respond. She just went to get water for him. But as she went, he also asked her for bread. And that did get a reaction. And we'll pick up the story in 1 Kings 17, verse 12. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, she recognized him as an Israelite. I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he And her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. This was a a remarkable, in fact, miraculous provision by God in feeding not just Elijah, but also the widow and her household. So for three years, God provided daily for Elijah and showed him beyond a shadow of a doubt that Elijah could trust him. Then he told him it was time to face Ahab again. We know the story, how Elijah confronted Ahab about leaving the people of God to serve Baal. And he sets a challenge to Baal's prophets for their God to light a sacrifice on an altar, which didn't happen. Then he, Elijah, repaired the altar of God 
set the sacrifice, poured gallons of water over it. We're not sure where he got the water from, but he did. And then God lit it with fire from heaven. Interesting that in his three years of training, Elijah learned to trust God, unlike the Israelites back in the wilderness. These are some of the Old Testament accounts, but what about the New Testament? In fact, if God's provision is a creation principle, a kingdom principle, and Jesus taught about the kingdom and demonstrated it with miracles and healings, we should see this in his ministry. There are several occasions when Jesus provides, but I guess the most amazing is the feeding of the 5,000. Here Jesus had been teaching the multitudes all day, and it's getting late. The disciples come to him and suggest he send the people away to get something to eat. Now Jesus said something which is both unexpected and scary. He says, you give them something to eat. Unexpected, not just because they didn't expect him to say that, but they had nowhere near enough food, just a few loaves and fish or money, to feed that number of people. So they had no obvious means to provide for them. Now previously, Jesus had sent his disciples out to preach the kingdom and heal the sick, instructing them not to take any provision with them, but to rely on the hospitality provided. So this was a scary raising of the bar to a whole other level which we'll come back to in a few minutes. We know what happened. Jesus came through and performed a miracle, providing for the people as well as the disciples. But he did it through the hands of the disciples. Okay, let's go back to Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread and examine it in a little more detail. The phrase, give us, This sounds like a demand. Years ago, if I had asked my dad, give me my pocket money, I might have got a clip around the ear. And and certainly, don't speak to your father like that from my mum, who would have then said, now ask nicely, may I have my pocket money? And what do you say? Please. So is this a request or a demand? I'm not sure it's either. I think it's a statement of faith. In fact, the whole prayer is a statement of faith. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but I'd rather call it the Kingdom Prayer because it really is a prayer for those in the Kingdom. We can't say it with any sincerity or integrity without being part of His Kingdom because it's a submission to his authority. We call him Father. We revere his holy name. We want his kingdom to come and believe that there is a heaven in which his will is done instantly. We ask for forgiveness and the ability to forgive others. And in saying, give us this day our daily bread, we acknowledge that God owns all the donuts. This is not a prayer for the unbeliever, but one who believes that this God is King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask because we believe he is our provider. 
What about this day? Why not this week or this month or even this year? Then I can, I can get on. I can focus on the more important things. Do the work that God has, provi- has put before me. I could pray, help people, and so much more. But this short-term provision really reinforces we must trust God every day for everything, including our work, which otherwise we might see as what we do to provide for ourselves. Just as the people of Israel in the wilderness had to collect manna every day, and if they kept it from one day to the next, it went bad and bred worms because it demonstrated they didn't trust God to provide for them on the next day. God made it very clear to Moses in Exodus 16, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. As the family of God who live this side of the cross and this side of the outpouring of the Spirit, we have to make this as a deliberate choice rather than it being imposed on us. When we pray this day, we are stating, Father, everything in this day comes from you. What about the word our? Notice that it is plural, not singular. Not just this phrase, but the whole prayer. Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. It's a corporate prayer. I don't mean that we should say it together, although that's not wrong. But as Dale clearly showed when he preached on this a couple of years ago, it's not the primary purpose of this prayer. So why is it corporate? Why is it plural? Why not give me my daily bread? When we come into the kingdom, or when we become a Christian, we automatically become part of God's family. And we are not alone. We're in this together. Jesus instructed his disciples in the latter part of his ministry to love one another. Paul similarly used phrases like devoted to one another. And in Romans 12, he says, So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are connected. But that's not the only reason for the plurality or the corporate element of this prayer. We are involved in providing for those not in the kingdom. This is evidenced in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus could have sent the people away or fed them on his own, miraculously, without the involvement of the disciples. Manna could have fallen from heaven. Ravens could have come and brought bread and meat. But he said, you feed them. He fed the people through his disciples. And we see both these aspects in the early church. Luke records this in Acts. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That's Acts 2. And again in Acts 4. And the congregation of those who believed 
were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This wasn't only limited to local Christians. When we looked at the culture of mission last autumn, we mentioned Paul's journeys and his request to the churches to support by offering to the church in Jerusalem. But it also goes broader than the church. This is what Paul wrote to the Galatians after his visit to the Council of Jerusalem. He says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, to the Jews. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So they, they acknowledged that Paul and Barnabas had a mission to the Gentiles. And the one thing they said, don't forget to teach them to remember the poor. This probably refers back to the Jewish tradition of tithing. When the second tithe, yes, you heard me right, second tithe, should be directed in year three and year six to support the strangers, the orphans and the widows. And in this new covenant, when we're, where we are no longer under law but under grace, we shouldn't miss this important principle of providing for those in need around us as we enjoy the Father's provision. We recognize that Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray rather than what to pray. We can use these words together, but that's not the primary purpose of these verses. So how should we pray? Well, to close and to summarize, let me finish by praying. I'm going to read a prayer to you, and then and you'll see it come up on the screen. If you're comfortable, when I've finished, I'd like us all to stand and pray it together to finish. Let me read it to you. Father, we thank you that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the cleansing of his blood, we find ourselves residents of your kingdom. We gladly submit to you as king and acknowledge that in your kingdom, you rule and you reign, but you also provide. In fact, you provide everything for us, our homes, our families, our friends, our work, our leisure, our money, and all our resources. We are dependent on you, and we have found that you are faithful to your word and your promises. We thank you that your provision is sufficient. It sustains, and it is good for the day. Thank you that you are generous in all your dealings with us, and help us to have open hands as we realize we may be the source of your provision to those around us in the church and beyond. Help us to learn to trust you for our daily provision that we may be better prepared to trust you 
in whatever challenges may face us in the future because we know that your provision is not dependent on our circumstances but on your faithfulness. If you're comfortable to pray that with me, would you stand? Father, we thank you that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the cleansing of his blood, we find ourselves residents of your kingdom. We gladly submit to you as king and acknowledge that in your kingdom you rule and you reign, but you also provide. In fact, you provide everything for us, our homes, our families, our friends, our work, our leisure, our money, and all our resources. We are dependent on you, and we have found that you are faithful to your word and your promises. We thank you that your provision is sufficient. It sustains, and it is good for the day. Thank you that you are generous in all your dealings with us. And help us to have open hands as we realize we may be the source of your provision to those around us in the church and beyond. Help us to learn to trust you for our daily provision that we may be better prepared to trust you in whatever challenges may face us in the future because we know that your provision is not dependent on our circumstances, but on your faithfulness. Amen.